are good. Hi, everybody. My name is Luke Thomas, and this is, let's see, which, I gotta be over here. And this is the Luke Thomas live chat episode 21 right here on my YouTube channel. I am the host of the Luke Thomas show, as you can well imagine, given the name, uh, on Sirius XM, channel 156. I am the host, co-host of Morning Combat, a digital showtime program, and uh, the donkmeister of this particular program as well. We'll go for about an hour and some change. And it will be tons of fun. Uh, without further ado, let's get things started, shall we? All right, there we are. Uh, as always, a couple of housekeeping notes. Subscribe, or give a thumbs up to the video. Subscribe to the channel below. See that right there? Subscribe. Hit the notification bell as well. If you're looking for information on any of my various projects. Uh, you can pay for all 15 hours of the Luke Thomas show every week, or you can get the free best of podcast. The free best of podcast has a link in the description box below. You want to get to morning combat description box below my social Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, everything, email me description box below. Everything is down there. So if you need to reach me for any reason and you want more of my content, there's a very, very simple place to get it. All right. Very good. Uh, appreciate everybody who uh, contributed a question. If you're new here, every Thursday right around noontime on the community tab section of this website, I go and I post a thread for questions, and then you guys fill them up, and then we just kind of react to them. So let me go there, refresh, see what's up, da -da 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 -da, and we'll get this going. 189 thumbs up. That's pretty good. And I think uh, over 200 questions. Very good. All right. Let's get to these, shall we? Uh, what are your expectations for the Khabib Tony presser next week? Gosh, I don't know if I have any, to be honest with you. Um, what are my expectations? To, for Tony to be Tony and for Khabib to be Khabib? I mean, I was there when they faced off at what was it, 209? I've, I've seen a couple of their face offs, as a matter of fact. So for me, it's not like. I mean, you've literally seen them face off a number of times. Um, I've seen how they interacted. They've talked about each other ad nauseum. I don't know that I have super... I don't have low expectations, per se. But I don't have high expectations. Habib's not the kind of guy to, like, insult Tony for injury. I mean, he might do it, but he pulled out from injury twice. So did Tony. So it's like they're both kind of equal on that footing. I don't know. And the other thing is, they're not pressers, dude. They're pep rallies. Call them what they are. UFC can call them what they want, especially for official designations, but it's not a press conference. It's a pep rally to which the media are invited. So if that's going to be the case, um, you should let the fans ask questions. That's just me thinking out loud. I don't, I, again, again, I'm not here like, oh, it'll be boring. It, it'll be fine. It'll be normal. It'll be, well, normal insofar as those two are normal, which is to say not very normal, but you know, in accordance with the behavior that you have come to expect from them. How about that? Uh, all right, here we go. On Joe Rogan's show, are you planning on bringing up the fighter's lawsuit? Joe has always been admitted Dana looks out. What? Joe has always been admitted Dana looks out for fighters and has never screwed them, mainly because how close he is with him. In addition, what are your top five subjects you'd like to talk with him? Well, you know, it's his show, so I think he gets to sort of say what we do and don't talk about. To the extent that he would like to talk about the fighter's lawsuit, uh, I'd be happy to. Um... Because 
it's fairly strong evidence that a lot of the claims that UFC has historically made about fighter pay have been proven to be utterly and contemptibly wrong. Um, you know, and we could talk about class certification and where the next stages are if you want. Uh, top five subjects. Well, let's see. We'll be coming off of 248. When is 249? Um, 249. That will be, yeah, the next one. So I guess we'll be sort of talking about Tony and Khabib probably will be a big one. Um, there's not a super big boxing fight between now and then. So I would imagine whatever the latest news is, Tony versus Khabib is going to be a big one. Maybe we'll get to anti-doping. Maybe we'll get to fighter lawsuits. Maybe we'll get to fighter pay. Maybe we'll get to history of MMA. I don't know. It's sort of his show, right? He gets to sort of dictate. I'll, I'll try and you know bounce back ideas, but I don't have like a, a rigid plan per se. But yeah, I hope that some of these controversial topics that you know he doesn't have a lot of MMA media on the show, to my knowledge, I think many, many, many years ago he had on Josh Gross, but recently he hasn't had anyone who's MMA media. And uh, not that MMA media in general is all that good about covering the fighter lawsuit, but uh, and, and I, I have not done original work on that, but I have had Paul Gift, John Nash, and many others on my show extensively um, to give that as much spotlight as possible because so, I think it's a very important issue. So, yeah, I would love to get to it, but I'm not going there with a super rigid plan. This is a fun one. Thoughts on the coronavirus spreading. Have you heard about the whistleblowers dying in Wuhan and Chinese billionaires claiming there are actually way more people dead and infected than we're being told? I have not heard about the Chinese billionaires. I can tell you that, um, you know, they did, who's that original doctor that was in that, uh, I think it was the Wuhan uh, area, who had raised alarms about it and the police had basically forced him to be quiet. He then dies and then warns that the Communist Party and the government more generally is not doing enough to stop it, um, gets sort of, uh, you know, stamped out, and all of his dire warnings essentially come true. Um, <laughs> which is kind of funny. Although, you know, I've not been super overwhelmed by the U.S. government's response, which was CDC warns about, what's the word, repatriating or bringing back all of the infected folks off that cruise, uh, government does it anyway. Health and Human Services sends out people to handle the affairs without proper um, gear. And they, they complained, by the way, and then were threatened with their jobs. That was a recent report that just came out. Uh, then a whistleblower uses official channels to say that this is not okay. In the meantime, all of those folks with Health and Human Services who were near the airbase where this was all taking place, just go back out into the public. No one is testing them and no one is tracking them. Sure enough, you have the first case of somebody who did not travel there and was not part of Health and Human Services. It's a person in that nearby community who has now been infected by it. So not been overwhelmed necessarily by the U.S. response, to be, to be quite honest, either. But I did see a report today, I think, in the New York Times, that uh, the Communist Party who in China, who royally messed this up on their end of things, they're now realizing like, oh, we're in trouble. So they're trying to like repackage themselves as the, uh, what do you want to say? Um, the, the folks who are the, the adults in the room who are really trying to take care of the, the virus. That's rich, to put it mildly. Yeah, man, I mean, it's, here's the thing about it. It's like, look, I lived through 
all of these dire warnings about swan flu and swine flu and bird flu. And they, they were mostly just not lies exactly, but they were grossly overstated. However, it appears that the coronavirus is wildly contagious from even minor forms of contact and it spreads rather easily and it can take some time for the symptoms to develop. And as a consequence, there's this just, you know, real easy way in which it can be spread. Um, so, you know, and they were saying, what, 40 to 70% of people in affected populations might get it. That seems a little on the high end, but it's, you know, if you, there, I, I tweeted a graph that had come out showing day over day the spread of disease relative to like SARS or MERS or even a bird flu. And it's wildly outpacing them in terms of uh, in, in, in infections. I'm not really that worried about me because the... The fatality rate is fairly high, somewhere between one and three percent. So let's say two. That's fairly high for any kind of, you know, communicable communicable disease. But really, more so, my understanding is that it's it's the, really the people you have to be concerned about is vulnerable populations like babies and the elderly. So if I catch it, I'm you know I'm sure it'll suck. I'm not saying it's not a not a nothing, uh, but I'm not overly concerned about it. The only thing I'm part of be concerned about is getting my daughter sick. You know, she's ten months old yesterday. Um, I guess I'd have to live in the basement like the donks from Parasite, which would suck. But you know, I guess you got to do what you got to do. So that part kind of concerns me. But, dude, they canceled school in Japan for a month. <laughs> for a month. Can you imagine those parents being like, oh, what are we going to do now with these donks? Um, so I, I do tend to think there's a lot of media hyster- uh, hysteria. I tend to think that there's bad government responses, both locally and then abroad. A couple places have had really strong responses and have been really good. Taiwan apparently has had a really good response to it. They were ready for it, and they had a lot of different mechanisms in play. Um, but so far, the U.S. response has been fairly uninspiring. I mean, look, do, here's the part about it. Like, I travel on Mondays. Here's what I do. I go from here to the Amtra- to the Union Station, which is, you know, where the Mark train, Mark connects D.C. to Baltimore, D.C. subway, people park in their cars, and then Amtrak all come through there. So you got people coming from all, all over the area. Then I take that to Newark. At Newark, I hop on the PATH train. The PATH train is a train that connects parts of Jersey to Manhattan. I use it to go in between parts of Jersey, but okay. So then I get off there. I go do my work for morning combat. Then I get back on a different part of the PATH train. Then I go back into Manhattan. Then on Manhattan, I have to take the subway a couple of stops. And then I go off and do my show. Then on I do my show, I then take a different subway line back down to Penn Station which everyone got bitter at me when I was making fun of it, but that place is feckin' with diseased people. I mean, and diseased more generally. Dude, if that, I mean, you guys know like the five-second rule where like, yo, you're eating, I don't know, a, a candy bar or something, a cracker, and it falls on the ground. You'd be like, five-second rule. Turns out there's nothing to that rule, but there are certain places where you might play that game versus others. If that food you're eating fell on the ground in Penn Station, it's just gone, bro. It's just gone. It's like dropping, I don't know, worms in a piranha tank. You're not, you're not getting that back. You just, you just got to let that one go. It's like, who was it? Uh, Thanos dropping Gamora off the, <laughs> off the edge to get the soul stone. I mean, good news. You, don't, you lost your Snickers bar, but you got the soul stone because they got germs the size of turtles over there, bro. It, you can't, you know. So my, I, I sort of am like resigned to the idea that to the extent it makes its way to either D.C., Baltimore, Philly, New York, I'm screwed. There's, what am I going to do? Um, but I'm not, I'm not too worried about me. I'm more worried about my daughter. So we'll see how that goes. Uh, I hate MMA slash boxing crossover fights as much as you. 
I don't hate them per se because they don't really exist. There's only been one. Well, do you want to count Tim Sylvia, Ray Mercer, sort of? But in the modern era with major names, there's only been one. I don't hate them. I can't hate things that don't exist. What I hate are media reports about things that are not real. I had a back and forth with MMA Junkies editor who seems like a nice person. It's not personal. Uh, but I used to work. I, I turned. I helped turn Bloody Elbow from something from nothing into something. Um, I had an editorial role at MMA Fighting. I had an editorial role at SBNation.com. I'm fairly aware of the mechanics of how the adver- advertising business affects the particular editorial model and the reverse chronological format that these particular sites of that scale use. I'm actually intimately familiar with it, and they put certain pressures on you to produce certain kinds of content. You can play with that to a degree. You have some latitude, but in general, that kind of thing has to go back and forth. And they had a piece up this past week about Francis, because I guess Fury had named him at some point by name. Big Francis and um, Ganu being like, oh, you know, what do you want to do next? And he's like, I want to go box and I want an MMA fight. And to me, it's like, you can you can say that, uh, put that in the interview notes, but like, to me, that's not news. Like, the news would be, okay, let's go to UFC. UFC, what do you have to say about this? If Up and until the UFC says that that's a thing they could do, it's not news because it's just fantasy. Hey, I want to go on a spaceship to the moon. Great. Do I have a plan to get there? Because if I don't, I don't understand what the relevance is of the news. Now, he disagreed because he thought that it was important. Um, you know, okay. Uh, again, I don't think he's a bad person. He's a very talented guy. I read MMA Junkie every day. I like it. It's not personal. But I just know those sites are nearly identical in uh, revenue generation in terms of modeling as all the other ones I worked on. The pressures are going to be f- pretty identical. Um, and they're similar size and scale too. So like I know, how the, I, know, I know what the pressures are. And there's a real pressure to consider that something reportable. But I just don't, I, I don't understand what the news is. There does not appear to be any news uh, insofar as I can tell. Anyway. However, the narrative coming out of the fight last weekend is that Wilder cannot technically box well. Well, buddy, that ain't, ain't the narrative coming out of last weekend. That's the narrative. That's been the narrative for a while. Uh, with this in mind, how competitive would Francis Ngannou versus Wilder be? That's interesting. Um, it might be competitive for a time. Like, when you say Wilder's not that good of a boxer, what are we saying? You know, relative to other very good elite boxers, is he that good of a boxer? No. However, he is, I mean, do you guys know where the bronze bomber comes from? He was a bronze medalist in the Olympics. Let me, uh, just for the uh, shits and giggles here, does Francis even have a uh, box rec page? Box rec is like the Wikipedia of boxing. Um, I don't believe that he does. Uh, Julius Francis. No, I don't think that he does. Does he have any boxing fights from a professional record listed anywhere on his Wikipedia page? No, I don't believe that he does. So we're talking about somebody who is 33, has no boxing experience, super heavy-handed. I would want to see, one, how his heavy-handedness translates to boxing. Uh, Two, for as bad of a boxer is as Wilder, he's probably a lot better than Francis. Uh, and three, he's got one thing that's good about him is his power carries late, and he's got great stamina. Now he didn't have great stamina in this particular fight, but in fairness to Wilder, um, over the course of his career, that's been something that's actually been really important for him because sometimes he goes out there like against Dominic Brazil and he knocks him out fast. 
a lot of times what happens is it takes a while for him to really get his game going because he has difficulty setting traps. And so because he can't set traps, he has to kind of wait for you to make a mistake or for you to get tired or some combination of the two. Um, so, you know, you, you could never count out Francis for landing a big shot. But Wilder, you know, what he wanted out of this game plan was what he got out of the second Luis Ortiz fight, which was, I'm going to just be patient, be patient, I'm not going to lunge in with anything, I'm going to protect myself. Uh, if he did that and then just waited for Francis, who I don't think even for the limited boxing ability that Wilder has is even less, to make a mistake, I would favor Wilder to win. I would not count out Francis's big power, provided that it translated over to boxing. But, um, you know, when we say Wilder's not good, we, we're talking about an Olympic bronze medalist who's not good relative to, like, these super elite guys. Francis is several degrees less than that. At least in boxing. Uh, what seems lost in the announcement of Cejudo versus... I hate this fight so much. What seems lost in the announcement of Cejudo versus Aldo is the fact that Aldo has a tremendous chance of winning. I'm not sure I disagree with that. Aldo has a significant size advantage. Well, and has legendary takedown defense. What is Cejudo going to do? Try and out-kickbox Aldo. What would it mean if 135, if Aldo becomes champ... I was thinking about this. I did a segment on my radio show about this to this effect. I, I, I'm not sure what the right answer is, which is to say the following. Imagine you didn't care about either fighter. You didn't like him. You didn't hate him. You're just utterly neutral about them. But what, the, what, what you were looking for was sort of a way to determine what would be better for the division, what would be better for MMA um, uh, in terms of selecting one winner. In other words, uh, who would be better? Who would you root for if what you were rooting for was – if that person wins, that's better for all of uh, the sport, better for that division, right? You can create better matchups, that kind of a thing. Who would you root for? And the answer is, I'm not really sure, right? Because Cejudo, if he wins, now someone made this point to me, you know, he could begin to build a legacy, so he takes this fight, but then he has to fight Peter Yan or Aljamain Sterling or somebody. And, you know, let's say he wins those. Those are all big ifs. But let's say he did. That would be like sort of one brick after the next about building this resume, so to speak. And then on the other side, um, uh, you know, if Aldo wins, it'd be this kind of redemptive story, two-weight world champ, you know, coming off of a two and four in his last six, off of a loss, you know, you'd be like, wow, man, what a really, what a, what a, what a way to show this guy's competitive no matter what. Those are the nice ways to say it. But the reality is, if Aldo wins, I, I really worry about what that might mean, because we, we are living in a world where Yoel Romero is getting a title shot, but I think most of us agree it's a pretty different scenario. We've gone over the details of that. Secondly, dude, if Aldo wins, people are going to be like, look, man, why are we just giving it to the people at the top of this contendership queue? Let's just make the fights that people say are fun. And then UFC will use it to justify skipping over all these other deserving contenders because they can then go say, aha, you see, we told you. We told you this was the fight to make. Uh, and it gives this artificial shot in the arm to Brazil, which where the rest of the game is kind of caught up to the country. And so they don't have the same grip on the game that they once did. Uh, I don't know that that's that great of a thing. And then on the other side, if Cejudo wins, he kind of gets what he wants. He doesn't have to fight a contender. He uh, gets to fight a guy who's got a bit more of a name uh, than his other contemporaries. Fix my chair here. What the fuck is this thing? Um, yeah, there we go. Who's got a bit more of a name than his contemporaries. And... Uh, this corrupted process by which a guy gets a title shot after not 
doing much for it, and the champion was calling for it because he wants it for reasons unrelated to competitiveness. He he would get he would be the winner in that process himself. He like he benefits from this uh, ridiculous event going forward. So it's like I don't know who I don't know who the good guy is here. It's like two guys working together in a collusion kind of way with the UFC signing off on it to do damage to the bantamweight division. Um, you know, it's not personal to either guy, but I don't. I just hate this fight. I hate everything about it. But you're right. I don't think that Aldo is totally out of it, which is like, but that just sort of goes to show you like why you do title fights. Yeah, man, there might always be somebody who you think you could put up in there and, and it, could be, it could be an interesting fight, but you have to reward accomplishment. That's what the whole thing is about. And accomplishment is typically some kind of a um, equivalency to uh, not merely the, the, you know, meriting the opportunity, but being a, a considerable challenger for the champion. Right? If you could win that much, you must be pretty good is sort of the idea. Uh, we're just sort of, we've just sort of, we've disentangled the two. We've said, well, you can be both pretty good and then not have a winning record, which is technically true, but then you get into all kinds of problems about how title shots are awarded and under what circumstances. I actually kind of worry about it in this one. You know, I don't know if the UFC would like then go down a path forever of just giving title shots to donks that were nowhere close, but if they're going to do this, what won't they do? Now, in terms of the fight itself... Has a significant size advantage. Yeah, yes and no. Has legendary takedown defense. That part is true. What is Cejudo going to do? Try and out kickbox Aldo. I think he's going to try and... Um, well, let's see what he can't do. He might try and wrestle a little bit. Let's see if that works. He is a good wrestler. He's got those good trips. He re- he's very good about the sort of fluidity of combining strikes into... Uh, and he doesn't do typical doubles and singles. I mean, he can do them. He does a lot of outside-inside tripping. It does a lot of clinch work, so you're gonna have you're gonna you're gonna see Aldo naturally probably pushing away a little bit, which means he might be backing up. If you can get him to back up, there might be ways to take him down against the cage, or um, if you can get him to back up, you might be able to push into him into your boxing range, stick and move kind of a thing. And you could say Aldo has a speed advantage; he might. Uh, he's a bit of a slow starter, so maybe Sudo can really get into him after that. Um, you know, Sudo's got a few options to play with there. I guess I have to sort of see what they what they elect to do, but yeah, it's a competitive fight. It seems like at least on paper. It sucks. I hate it. I hate everything about it. That should be Peter Yon's or Aljamain Sterling's fight. Either of those guys, I think, would actually have a much more interesting fight, I think. Um, you know, I, I, hard to know, in particular Peter Yon, but Aljamain too, maybe. Would you say Joshua's loss to Ruiz hurt his stock more, or Wilder's loss to Fury and subsequent handling of said loss? I know it's hard to ignore Joshua's redemptive victory in the rematch, but who would you say took a harder hit coming out of their respective defeat? Um, that's a great question. Well, you're right. Part of the situation is we're living in a world where Joshua got the redemption, and he did it by changing the fight style. Rather than fighting fire with fire, he did much more of a defensively stick and move, pick your shots and go kind of scenario. Um, so we're not, we're not, it's not apples to apples, but if I can remember with the time what it was like, I mean, they're really different, right? Because folks weren't expecting anything, and here comes this Andy Ruiz guy out of nowhere. I'll say this. It's a little bit different because it worked against Joshua that Andy Ruiz was not considered to be, even, even though you know he had the Olympic pedigree and was considered by hardcore insiders to be a, you know, a decent challenge. Not, they didn't think he was going to be the winner, but a decent challenge. 
that um, it, it cut both ways for Joshua, which is, um, you know, on the one hand, you got beat by a guy who was in there last minute notice who you were not expected to lose against. On the other hand, uh, it made climbing up the ladder and getting that redemptive moment, I think, a little bit easier, which is not to say that Ruiz is an easier fight, but just consider the uphill climb that Deontay has in front of him. You know, Joshua had to beat Andy Ruiz, and that's not easy. You saw, but he did it. Dude, Dante Wilder has to beat Tyson Fury to get that back. Fucking good luck with that. <laughs> good good luck with that. Uh, you know, you never say never with a guy. Boxing's crazy. Tyson could get overconfident. You know, who knows? But skill for skill, that's not a fight he can win ever. Ever, 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 ever. And so everyone kind of knew that Deontay had these liabilities, as you had indicated, but no one was ever really take it, able to take advantage of him. And, and Tyson not merely did it, or Fury rather, but did it in dramatic, overwhelming, big brother fashion in every phase of that, in every distance, in every phase of that fight. There was like nothing where um, Deontay had clear advantages. It was ridiculous. So that's one scenario where um, you knew that Joshua had this rebound potential that whatever the temporary stinging defeat, there was always a chance to reclaim it. And again, not fairly easily, but you had a reason to believe he could do it. Fury, Wilder's in a much, much, much more difficult position. I think the other part is, you know, I thought Joshua handled his first loss with a little bit of class, right? He was like, hey, man, better guy win. What are you going to say? And, yeah, I know stuff leaked about him getting dropped in camp and blah, blah, blah. That kind of stuff is inevitable. But, like, in terms of what he said on the microphone, I thought he carried himself pretty well, right? He carried himself pretty well. Wilder has made every mistake. Like, Wilder was like, hey, how many mistakes can I make? Oh, let's see. One, two, three, four, five. So I can make five mistakes here. Let me go make all of them. You know, and I put out a video because I thought one of his claims about being fatigued by the weight was not unreasonable. However true it is, not an unreasonable claim. But it, like, it doesn't matter because, one, do you even want to say that for PR? No. Two, uh, you didn't say that the real reason why you lost, and this is the real reason why you lost, is because you got thumped by a, you got dump trucked by a better fighter. Period. Like, no two ways about it. Before you got dropped from the first round on, you were getting thumped by a better fighter. It's just how it went. He hasn't said it, you know, and then blaming his coach. And then, you know, uh, just everybody who was responsible for this loss other than himself, he has essentially blamed. And I think between that and then the uphill climb he has and taking on Fury a third time, uh, I think Wilder's probably taking a bit of a bigger hit. There was a, there was a particular kind of spiking hit that Joshua took that didn't last. I think the more lasting damage is going to happen to Wilder. Now, if he goes back there and beats Fury, he'll have bigger redemption. I find that to be terribly unlikely. But, you know, there's lots of things I thought that were unlikely that were that ended up happening. So that that would be my thinking about it in real time. That would be uh that would be it. So I would say higher spike went to Joshua but more lasting long-term damage will go to Wilder. So in the end, probably Wilder is sort of the, the way I would answer that, provided he doesn't achieve some kind of miracle and then beat um, oops, and then beat uh, Fury the third time, which, you know. That would be, to me, if he beat Fury in the third fight, I would be, I don't even know what the word for that would be. Shocked is an understatement. Let's see. If you could write a biography of any MMA fighter, who would you pick and why? I 
Uh, none. If you could read a well-done biography of an MMA fighter, who would it be and why? Jesus. I don't know. Um, to be candid with you, it's, I want to be clear about this. It's not that I don't find MMA bios pretty interesting. Like I had no idea until The Athletic did that piece on Brent Premise that he was out there, you know, drug dealing and the whole bit. Like that was pretty interesting, right? But I will tell you where my mind is at today. So I'm, I can only answer these questions in real time, at the time in which you asked and the time in which I was living. My mind is so far from that today that uh, I really, I, 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 frankly, I probably don't pay enough attention to it. But I am so focused on the exploration of technique now that it's all I do. It's all I do. Today, for example, I bought um, Faraz Zahabi's guard retention video. I am um, I'm reading a book currently on uh, kickboxing footwork. Um, I bought John Danaher's uh, Rear Naked Choke series on BJJ Fanatics. And this is what I spend... I'm not exaggerating most of my free time consumed because I'm consumed by it because you know what I've noticed, man, and this is to be inevitable because I'm not an expert under any circumstance. I feel like I'm fight literate. I do believe I'm fight literate, but I do not believe I'm an expert. And so what happens is even in the case where I broke down in, in a fairly, you know, granular, granular detail, the Tyson Fury and Wilder rematch, you know, I went back and I watched it another time and another time and another time, even after I'd done the presentation. And I picked up on some stuff that I had missed. There's this thing that happens to me every time, which is inevitable because I can't get it all right. I, I, can, I, I only try to focus on the things that I know and then make a case for those. Um, but anytime, in it, it's the best presentations that I've done, and that's been one of the better ones, I think, um, when they're all over, I always realize I miss something every time. Every time I'm like, fuck, how did I not see this? And so on the one hand, I get a certain satisfaction out of the presentation and the parts that went right. On the other hand, there's always this deep-seated burn that happens afterwards about the parts that I missed. And, uh, and as a consequence, then I just sit for hours. Um, I'll text coaches. I mean, I can't really train right now because my life is consumed with a lack of sleep. But um, what I can do is I can... I can talk to coaches. I had Ben Davison on my show yesterday, Tyson Fury's former trainer. I've been texting people in MMA about it um, and just getting you know any kind of tutorial I can find and anything, anything where there's like, like real detailed information broken down. And all I'm doing right now is just going over all of it, all of it, boxing, jiu-jitsu. Um, am I doing any wrestling right now? No. Mostly just footwork. Um, boxing and jujitsu right now is sort of really what I'm paying attention to. And, um, that's never going to be a substitute for really effectively getting in there and training. Of course I've done that, but not any, not at the present moment, certainly. Um, but you know, you do what you can with the resources that you have is what I always tell folks. And you know, the totality of some training experience, some tutorial experience, asking a lot of questions. I'm fortunate enough to talk to coaches. I was talking to coach, uh, Duke Rufus about why he was, you know, apparently when I didn't realize this. So when Felder was throwing the hooks against the hook sequences against uh, Dan Hooker, Rufus noted that he was loading up on his hooks early and then finishing the, the, the third or second strike in the combination with not as much authority. He was telling him, do the opposite, right? So make the first one or two, not weak, but don't put all your mustard on it. And then maybe the last one really kind of stick it to him, whether it lands or not. And I was like, why would you, why, why would you want to reverse those? 
And his answer was, when you have someone who's evasive, they're usually evasive for one or two. After that, their evasiveness goes down. So stay on them with the appropriate combo and then save it. If you've got someone who's very good at evasiveness, save it through the end of the combo, not the early part, because that evasiveness has a short shelf life. Um, and I, I'm taking notes on this constantly. So the things I think about now when I think about fighters are, who are the people who are pushing the envelope in terms of skill and strategy and tactics and development and uniqueness and that kind of a thing? Like people's bios is not where I'm at. I, I, I'm, not even, I'm not even thinking about that stuff, which isn't to say you shouldn't, which isn't to say there's no value to it. It's just I can't bring myself to really give that uh, an exorbitant amount of attention when I'm, I'm – and I'm not even exaggerating here. I am utterly consumed by those other questions. I can't – every night I wake up, and, I, and I'm being dead serious, every night I wake up and I make a note about all the questions I have from all the fights I've seen, whether it's kickboxing, MMA, jiu-jitsu, whatever – and I'm like, what did I not understand about this? What did I not understand? And I'm texting coaches. I'm calling people, texting my friends who still train, watching whatever I can, reading whatever I can. That's what I am. That is all that I do right now. So, um, which is probably not healthy, but bios. I don't know, man. It's probably a better question for somebody like a Ben Folks or Chuck Mendenhall or something. Uh, why isn't anyone talking about how carrying 273 pounds in the clinch? You mean clinch. Clench and clinch, two different words. Clench is sort of like a squeeze. Clinch uh, is the particular kind of, well, they can both be nouns and verbs, but clinch is the particular position. As what, uh, the clinch is what tired Wilder's legs. I will admit it's possible that carrying 40 pounds for 30 minutes can diminish your stamina and a small percentage, uh, a small percentage, and a small percentage is often what uh, can be the difference in a title fight. Fair point. I think that's all the point I ever wanted to make. It's a fair point. Uh, but Tyson was loading a, a lot more than 40 pounds on him during that fight. This question goes on. I noticed Wilder didn't look right when he took the mask off. The patented monster jaw stretch was brief with a look of panic. Yeah. Here's the thing. I mean, everyone, the, the problem is Deontay handled everything after the fight so badly, so badly. Oh my God, it was so bad. You couldn't believe, I mean, it was like, dude, who the fuck, where was your manager to be like, uh, what are you saying? Stop. Uh, it was just so bad, but it didn't mean that like, and again, if you didn't prepare for that shit to weigh on you the way that it did and, or, or, and, or if you lied on Rogan about training with the 45 pound best, like whatever the scenario was, you know, um, that's on you, Deontay, that's on you and it's on you alone. And all these excuses was just like, I, I, I did a, I did a segment on my radio show yesterday. We did it for two different, um, um, sequences. Who's a fighter you've done a 180 on? Cause I still like Deontay. But he has turned himself into a villain with all of this. And Tyson, yes, I know he was, oh, Fury was beloved in the UK, but I think he's converted a lot of American fans, man. He's really, he's turned himself into a bit of a hero, plus with all the, you know, losing weight and getting sober stuff. Like, I mean, you want to talk about changing positions. Wow, not just with a championship belt, but okay. Um, why aren't people talking about the, the leaning on him? I, I did. I mean, I did. I can't go for everybody. Here's the thing. When you bring up, oh, my God, it was the costume and it was 40 pounds, it's so crazy. It's so ludicrous. People are going to jump on it. Plus, the costume is like, you know, it's this grand thing. He looked like a like Master Shredder and a Decepticon had mixed to go to Mardi Gras. It was, I mean, he was the weirdest costume ever. I love it insofar as the pageantry is concerned, but... 
you know, I mean, that's going to be eye-catching. Look, most people, and this is me included, don't know that much about boxing, man. So they're not focused on those things. They, they can only know what they talk about. When people watch a boxing fight, what are they watching? They're just kind of waiting to see, like, what is obvious for the average person to be able to tell. Did the punch land and did it obviously and unequivocally hurt him? After that, dude, there's not many people qualified to have conversations about boxing fights being scored or what really matters and what they saw. And, um, you know, I, I would refer you to the piece that I did for Morning Combat Dissected. We go over it in detail. He had the whole thing planned in terms of how to enter that space, in terms of once the thing, once the space was entered, how to wrap with one hand and then he was uppercutting with the other. And, and then he would, he would almost like guillotine him until Kenny Bayless came and separated him. And it wasn't just that. There were times where you guys noticed he would fire a hook by driving the near side shoulder to him and then wrap the back of the head and then push him across himself, sometimes to line up for the right, but sometimes just to stumble him. It wasn't just the clinch. The clinch was a big part of it, but it was more than that, dude. He was going, he had a whole array of tricks to big brother him. So you're right. The clinch was absolutely a big part. I feel like I did what I could, you know, and many other analysts have done, uh, uh, you know, the same kind of thing, probably even a better job. But, but um, most, you got on the one side, people don't know much about fighting. On the other side, you've got this crazy scenario with this like visual event and this this like galactically bad PR um, excuse that he floated out without ever acknowledging Tyson Fury's greatness. That's of course what they're going to jump on. Like it just makes total sense. It's not fair to Tyson Fury because he looked fucking awesome. But it's the world we live in, man. But here's the thing: like you know, if you notice that. Uh, and I noticed it. That means all the real, again, I'm not some kind of real boxing expert. Well, it, far from it is my point. And I'm saying if even I can notice it, all the real boxing people know, noticed it. You know they noticed it. And you know they were like, ooh, you know. And, and you know who noticed it? And he doesn't want to admit it. I mean, here's how you know. Here's how you know it worked. Because he complained about Kenny Bayless letting the, ref, letting the fight go on. With Tyson doing that, I'm like, dude, you know, Tyson Fury was, you know, playing a little bit with the dirty boxing tricks a little bit. It wasn't totally clean, I acknowledge, but let's just call it what it was. He let that fight go on way longer than he had to, Deontay, way longer than he had to. If anyone got gifted a little bit there from the referee, it was Deontay Wilder. It was not Tyson Fury. Um, Yeah, again, I'm not saying Tyson Fury played it 100% down the middle and everything was clean and by the book, you know. He fudges with the with the rules a little bit, okay, uh, but you know <laughs> that's not why you lost, and that you could have lost a lot sooner. So let's just be very clear about that. The English FA recently banned heading in football soccer uh, for training for youth players due to the long term brain damage linked with persistent heading. Do you think this is a rational measure or a step too far? Something similar happened here, I think, in uh, youth sports for soccer as well. I'm not sure at what level. I I have to go back and check, but I don't think that the English FA is alone in doing this. I think that an American uh, either league or body, I don't know if it was U.S. soccer. that I'd have to look it up, but suffice to say, they're not alone in their concerns about this. You know, I um, it's an interesting one, right, because... You know, people don't realize this. Everyone thinks of trauma in the brain as something that MMA fighters would get or boxers get, which, you know, is certainly a fair thing. Or, you know, if you saw the Aaron Hernandez documentary on um, 
Netflix. He had the brain of a what a forty or fifty year old, and he was twenty seven when he died. And he had stopped playing at that point for several years. So twenty three, twenty four, and he had all that damage accrued. Um, and these huge contact sports. But it turns out that you know there was been there's been numerous studies done of uh, soccer players, uh, predominantly in Europe, because they start a lot earlier there, historically speaking. Now they start early here, but that's not been... I've played soccer as a kid here too, but it wasn't... Soccer just wasn't what it was today. It's just not the same. In any event, and they've done it for Italian players. They've done it for... I think I saw a study on Scottish players, and the results are clear. Like The amount of brain trauma they take is surprisingly high, and it's a function of the fact that not only are they heading the ball, but remember, one key difference between... Um, MMA and let's say uh, soccer is that MMA doesn't have much of an amateur system and no Olympic route. So your chances of taking head trauma in the gym, there might be some of that, but you know, kids are playing soccer from the single digits on, you know, when they're six, seven, eight years old or something, and then to play it all the way up through 18. And if they're really good, they go to the pros, or even if they're not really good, they probably continue playing for a long time. And so you've got, you know, by the time you're 30, you might have 20 plus years of accumulated damage and if you've been a professional player it's been unrelenting right and especially if like um well i wonder i don't know what the my hunch is that defenders right the back line probably have more not brain damage but they take more headshots although i i don't know that there's any uh, there might be evidence to that effect i don't know that's just my guess but in any case um so you're trying to figure out well how do we how do we fix this and so you say, well, when the brain is still developing and the skull is not as sturdy as it um, will be, you eliminate these portions of the game that are clear risk factors. But then what happens is you begin to change the game, right? I mean, they're, they're having a similar debate here in American football. When do you start, um, you know, how do you teach tackling? And when do you really institute aggressive kind of padded tackling in football? And there's been a lot of reformation about that. And, you know, football is a little bit like, I say the same thing, it's like fighting. It's a little bit like American football. It's like smoking, dude. It's not really all that way of a safe way to do it. You can substitute in your American spirits for some marble lights or ultralights, whatever. It, it, it's, not, it's not really safe. But um, the, the, the reason people have been upset about it is because I mean, I'm not in England, but my hunch is it's, it runs along the same lines as many debates here, which is, okay, you can take these measures to, to affect health, and they probably will work to some extent, but you, you risk really changing the game, and not, not really changing the game, but frankly lowering the skill level of the athletes because uh, while heading the ball may not be the most dominant part of soccer, obviously soccer is predominantly a function of the feet, it is a pretty goddamn important part. It's one reason why Messi, I think, is different than Ronaldo, which would not merely be attributed to dribbling skills, overall scoring totals. But you guys saw that clip recently of Ronaldo getting sky high with Juventus and that I think it was a header he had hit in. Um, that was a big, a big portion of his game that's different from Messi is his capacity to do that. Like, you know, that's a skill you have to build over time, and it's partly athleticism too. Um, so I do I think it's a rational measure. It's a rational measure of what you care about is, is limiting brain damage. There's consequences to it. So the question is just going to be, do you accept the consequences, which could be um, a changed game, a changed way of playing, and a diminishment of a particular kind of skill that has historically been 
a fairly central feature to either defending or even attacking in the game, particularly on set pieces and and other kinds of uh, other kinds of spots. Yeah, it's a uh, it's it's really a question of your priority. Thoughts on the conflict of interest debacle that involves James Krause and Trevin Giles, dude? What a fucked up story this is, man! Unbelievable. Uh, I've said this before, and I, if you guys had missed it, I'll repeat it here. Uh, that that fight should be overturned. The fight should be overturned to a no contest, no doubt in my mind at all. You have a guy judging who, in and of its own, independent of that bout, raising questions about his competency. And forget the John Jones bout, right? Judge Slees did the four one Jones, which, you know, the more I think about it, is not egregious, but it's not it's not great. And then you got the three uh, or the thirty twenty seven Ewell, which is bad. And now you got this one. So independent of the Ewell, excuse me, independent of the Kraus fight. He's already got some suspect scoring. And then on top of it, you get this scenario where, um, dude, you got your black belt from the guy cornering the other guy? Holy fuck, man. I don't know how to explain this. It's like the way I often say it is for anybody who is trained, because uh, if you've not trained, the answer is, of course, no. But for anybody who's trained... Um, how many times have you personally witnessed somebody get promoted to black belt? Right? And the answer is probably not many. For some, maybe never. You might have seen black belts. You know, talk to me, roll with some, whatever, train with some. But how many times have you seen someone go from brown to black and get promoted by their professor, teacher, whatever they want to call it? It's a, it's a rare thing. And dude, it's a bond, man. That's a special, that's a special bond you will keep for the rest of your life. And sometimes people have falling outs with the people that gave them black belts, but like go to BJJ heroes. You ever been to BJJ heroes? It's kind of like the wiki for elite jujitsu competitors, Wikipedia. And they, for every black belt who's on there, Felipe Pena, Gordon Ryan, uh, Felipe Costa, Marcus Puchesha, Almeida, Hamaloba Hall, you know, you name it, Cobrinha. They trace their black belt lineage. This guy got his black belt from this guy, from this guy. And they trace it back to like, you know, Matsuya Maeda or, you know, whoever. Like, you're, it's part of your family fucking tree, man. You know, and then to go and then you're judging another dude's uh, fight and the guy you got your black belt. Now the guy you gave your black belt to, which is another kind of sacred bond. But to me, it's even more sacred on the receiving end. That guy gave you his black belt and you're judging him. And 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 the, that guy got his back taken and nearly choked out over the course of four minutes. And you gave him the fucking round dude that is a f- I, I don't know if james Krause is going to challenge it i think i've heard that he might he needs to and again texas has the final say so that doesn't mean it's going to get overturned but just make you got to make them say we're not going to overturn it because it's just terrible pr for them you have to make them go through the process you have to make them consider it because maybe it's terrible pr and then maybe that gives them a little bit more oversight um, the next time around that they do this kind of thing, that they really look into it, and they're much more thorough about trying to root out conflict of interest. Dude, James Krause got got screwed, and it's not it's not a case where you can say he didn't. Oh, he absolutely deserved to win. No, you can make a case that Giles won rounds two and three. However, you wanted to score it. That's not two. Obviously, he won. And three, you could make a very simple case that he won. Fine. Not the point. The point is you are entitled to a fair process. There's been times where, like, you know, murderers go free or somebody who does something bad goes free because, for example, they didn't get read their Miranda rights. And I don't want to compare it to your constitutional rights, but the point being is is, is there's a a, a similarity there. You are entitled to a fair process. 
If you cannot do the process fairly, the process should not count. And they didn't do the process fairly. No doubt in my mind they didn't do the process fairly. I know sometimes you guys get on me for being wishy-washy. Can I be more clear? That fight needs to be overturned to a no contest. No questions asked. I would, if I was sitting on that commission, I would easily vote for that. Easily. That's, this is not difficult to understand. And so I feel terrible for James Krause. I mean, in the end, he, you know, he, I think folks understand what, what he's capable of. And he got the new deal. And I think he got a bonus for it. And so to an extent, all's well that ends well. But if I always say it about USADA. I'll say it about any kind of uh, institutional uh, institution that has power over the fighters. They're going to look out for their own interests. And they're going to do that sometimes at the expense of fighters here. you got to make them answer for it. Make them answer for it. And maybe you don't get their way, but maybe you save somebody the next time out. Or, um, or maybe you do get your way. Even better. But that is gross. It's not Trevin Giles' fault. Frankly, it's not even his coach's fault. It's no, no, no. It's none of the fighters' fault. It's the it's the judge and it's the uh, in particular the commission. They 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 knew better. They knew better. And if not, they should have known better. Uh, egregious, completely egregious. Uh, this person writes, I love your dissected videos on morning combat. Thank you. I urge anyone to go and watch them. Thank you. It gives me, an armchair fan, a deeper understanding of what is going on. Have you ever considered doing a dissected classic where you go back and dissect some of the greats such as Ali, Tyson, and Floyd? It would be pretty cool. You know, I have not thought about that, but that's not a bad idea. Um, I'd rather do one of those on my personal channel than on dissected, but... Um, that's a great idea. You know, I'm, I brought this up this week... And I don't know what the answer is. In fact, I think there's a bunch of different answers. It's never really always one thing. It's usually many. Um, in the after... Okay, what is dissected? This thing that I do on Morning Combat. Or what was the Monday Morning Analyst? It was taking the coverage of technique and strategy and fight results and turning that into a news beat. I mean, that's sort of really how you how I think about it. Like, I, I it's part of my like, what is what do I cover? I cover that. I mean, I cover other stuff too, but that's part of what I cover. And I noticed on the boxing side that doesn't really exist. Now, you do have people who break down technique. You got a lot of people who are very good at being historians uh, around this fight. So any kind of like really big fight, you see a lot of people come out of the woodwork and provide a lot of technical insight. But day to day, site to site, technical coverage of the sport doesn't. I'm not saying it doesn't exist, but my anecdotal experience is there's not a whole lot of it. And that's not really true in, like, for example, in MMA. In MMA, I'm not the only one who does what I do. There's lots of people who do something kind of similar to it. In jiu-jitsu, it's like everywhere. Now, you would say, well, jiu-jitsu is a very heavy participatory sport, so that would make more sense. Okay. Still, it's a big component of if you go to flow grappling or, um, you know, that kind of a thing. Uh, you guys remember Budo Jake back in the day on YouTube? He used to do all kinds of stuff like this. Anyway, um, so there's that, and it's weird that boxing doesn't have a lot of that because uh, I don't know why. I don't know why. I'll say this, though. Part of it is probably because there's a lot of Luddites. It's a bit of an older audience. So, you know, I, you're like, oh, an older audience. You're 40, Luke. Right. Young by, bo by boxing standards. I showed this story before. First time I covered a boxing presser, this must have been, Jesus, how long ago was this? This was... 12, 13 years ago. It was a long time. First time I covered a boxing presser, I remember I had, 
um, what was I recording with? Oh, I had a camcorder. I was recording with a camcorder. So I had video and audio. And I didn't have a good microphone, but I at least had a camcorder, right? Four or $500 camera. And I remember uh, we stuck the microphone in the boxer's face. And it was a bunch of other like on the beat boxing dudes, reporters. And they were all, they all had um, those tape cassettes, you know, like the ones that they used to do like court depositions with. So it's like, it's like the size of your phone, but there's like a cassette in here. And I had been covering MMA events and UFC events for several years at that point. Not once had I ever seen that. In fact, you know, you'd have see guys hold their phones up and there'd be an app on it. They have a nice sort of camera rig, you know, prosumer levels, what they call it, the mix between professional and consumer. And I went to this boxing presser and these dudes had cassettes. I was like, holy shit. <laughs> that was a wake-up call. I was like, whoa, these guys are ripe for the picking. Now, that's changed a lot more recently. You've got you know sites and you know independent YouTube sites like Fight Hub TV, Marcus Vijegas out there doing great stuff. Um, but part of it, I just wonder if it's an older audience that just is less technically inclined to explore their own interests. I don't know. It's weird, right? If there was a Space Jam equivalent to MMA, who would you cast in the place of Michael Jordan? What other fighters would deserve a role cameo? The problem is all, I mean, Michael Jordan was not, you know, Michael Jordan was an asshole to people, degenerate gambler, you know, talk shit on the court. He, he tortured Kwame Brown. And he, this is the, the, the list is endless. But he had a pretty squeaky clean image. You know, he's out there hawking underwear from Hanes and Gatorade and everything else in between. So who is our top star that's got a squeaky clean image? We don't really have one. You know, Connor seems to be, we'll see what happens with the, the sexual assault investigations in Ireland. Maybe nothing. He seems to be turning over a new leaf. I guess we'll see. John Jones is trying to rehabilitate all the damage he's done. Um, those would be my top two choices if the other considerations weren't in play. Um, what other fighters would deserve a role in Cameo? You'd have to have some old heads in there. right? You know, you'd have to have like a Chuck or a Randy... You'd have to have, even before that, you'd have to have like a Igor Vovchanchin or a, you know, who's a, a Hollywood star or you know, what had a Hollywood bit parts for a while? Oleg Taktarov, you could have him in, up in there. Um, you, you gotta have, you gotta have, you gotta have your like your bigger ones that, you know, any candidate who's on MMA Mount Rushmore and then beyond. You gotta have your GSPs, you gotta have your Bisping, you know, he's always full of vinegar and piss. Um, Anderson Silva would be boring. For a time, you could have done it with Anderson. For a time. But then everything kind of collapsed around him, too. Yeah, it kind of sucks about fighting, right? All your best fighters. I'm not saying that Michael was actually any better than them. Although maybe he was. But he had his, he had a, the, the benefit of having a different era of media, yes. But also just like, he just had a squeakier image. Or a squeakier clean image. Relative to our top stars. Maybe undeservedly, but he did. And so in the public consciousness, it was easier to make something like that. Obviously, today, if you did it in basketball, it would be LeBron, right? Or something like that. Mm, cold coffee. Uh, why does America not have any roundabouts? <laughs> That's a weird question. They're great for the flow of traffic. Well, we do. You just got to go to the right cities. So uh, we have them in D.C., DuPont Circle, Logan Circle, two uh, obvious ones, right off Rhode Island Avenue, and then up Connecticut. So there's a two two easy ones you could go about 
and do it. Uh, there's other roundabouts here in the city as well. Um, p- part of the municipal planning of the city here in Washington, D.C. was done by the French, hence the roundabouts. If you go to any American city that had uh, either either the French did the early municipal planning of it, Savannah might be one of those cases, uh, or French-inspired traffic uh, patterning, you'll see it. But we've got some here. Although they're not big, like I've been to, I, like I've been to the uh, was it the uh, Arc de Triomphe in Paris. You actually like there's it's so wide. It's all, all on an island in the middle of this giant roundabout, and there's like eight fuck eight. There's like eighteen lanes up in that thing, and to get from one side of the Arc de Triomphe to like to the to itself, I guess you have to go underground, and there's all these violin players and shit. Uh, I don't like Paris that much, to be perfectly honest. It doesn't it doesn't do much for me. But I've been there a couple times. My um, brother was born there. And my sister lived there up until the age of like 10 or 11. My sister and my father and my mother, who obviously is deceased, but my they all speak French. I do not. Um, in any event, I don't like Paris all that much, but the roundabouts, they do exist. They do exist. But it would have to become from French-inspired traffic patterning. Uh, let's see. Would you ever do a strongman breakdown or recap of, say, an event like the Arnold Classic, which is coming up soon? I want to go this year, but couldn't, make, couldn't swing it. Uh, as strength journalist coverage is virtually non-existent compared to MMA, I'm sure lots of competitors would love to be on your show. Turns out they wouldn't. I have invited the Eddie Halls and the uh, Brian Shaws and the um, Kaylor Woolhams all on the show. I've had big. I, it's, so, it's so funny. It's like, dude, I've had way bigger guests than all of them, and uh, they don't seem interested. They don't. They don't. They don't really want to bite. I don't think they're very good at doing media. I don't think they understand doing media. I mean, they're busy people too, to be quite honest. You know, uh, although less so Kaler than in the Eddie Hall is sort of like a big deal. Brian Shaw is a big deal, that kind of a thing. Um, but they don't seem to—they don't seem to bite. Now, I did kind of do a little bit, not live, but sort of watching the stream. Uh, the Arnold has a deadlift competition with a special rogue bar called the Elephant Bar, and um, who was it? Was it uh, was it Jared Caron who had the bloody nose last year or two years ago? Off the uh, deadlift. I love it when people's nose start bleeding off the deadlift to me. That's like popping the champagne cork, um, you know, for a celebration when the nose starts coming out. Uh, I love that. I've never had a bloody nose off a deadlift. I've had, I've gotten dizzy. I've seen stars, you know, I've done a lot of astronomy, seeing all the stars, but I've never had the bloody nose. I wish. It's a part of my life that's been missing. I'm dying to get it. Or you can even get the Larry Wheels joint where Larry Wheels will do the, uh, will do the lift. And then he'll have blood just come out secreting from his normal pores. That that's a that's a I'm not sure if I'm looking for that, but I am looking for the nosebleed. That that would be awesome. Um so I would, I would, but anytime I've tried, they don't seem interested. I had Chad Wesley Smith on my show, who was a, you know, he's a, a nine hundred plus squatter, I think a seven or eight hundred plus puller, and uh a five or six hundred uh bencher. And he's now doing jujitsu. I had him on my show. We kind of struck up a little bit of a uh, a friendship. He's great, um, but those big heavy monsters, you know, I've never asked uh, the uh, Hafthor Bjornsson, which is the uh, the guy from Game of Thrones. But um, you know, we'll see. I'm trying. They don't like. They don't want my attention apparently. So I had uh, you know um, uh. Lane Norton on. I mean, he's not strongman, but he's in the fitness community to talk about his response to 
the Game Changers documentary. I mean, I have these fitness guys. I had I had Mark Henry on, right? Big Mark Henry, the WWE one. I had him on because we wanted to talk about. Remember, do you guys remember when the Mountain came out? And was like, yeah, I use steroids, <laughs> or I think he was like, I have previously used steroids, and everyone's like, oh my god, can you believe the Mountain used steroids? I'm like, yeah, motherfucker, the guy can rep uh, over a thousand pounds. He can do a thousand pound double off an elephant bar over in Iceland. Well, you think he's doing that eating asparagus? Like, fuck are you talking? Yeah, of course, you know. Anyway, um, and then, you know, Mark Henry didn't like that. So he came on my show to talk about it. We had a debate about it. And uh, so he came on. And it's like, you know, Mark might be a bigger celebrity than many of those guys. I don't know. You know, they just, look, they don't want the attention. All I can do is roll out the red carpet. I guess they don't see it as worth their time. So there you have it. Uh, considering Tyson Fury's younger brother, Tommy, had more Instagram followers than him, 3 million followers, prior to this fight at only 2-0, and o, to what extent are Instagram followers a fair representation of how much a draw a fighter is? Well, I would be very careful about using it in any kind of clear, you know, coral, uh, what would be the word, correlative, clear correlation scenario. It's not, it's never one-to-one. But what I would say is, as part of measuring someone's overall mass appeal, looking at their social media numbers is not the definitive conclusion, but it can be very helpful, right? Because you can imagine many reasons why someone might be more popular than somebody else on social media and then less popular in the more uh, general public. There's a lot of ways for, you can, for that to, be, to, to, to happen. So... Um, it's, it's a valuable thing to count among other valuable things, but by itself, not that big a deal. What is this? <laughs> All right. I'll read this one. Cause it's, I think it's, you gotta be trolling. Um, what do you think of Wilder using self identity politics and trying to create a race war? <laughs> Was justice served in the end by Fury beating him? And is this the main reason why many Americans have turned against Wilder and supported Fury? Y'all, it was Black History Month. Don't overthink it. (laughs) What? He's a black sports champion, at the time anyway, uh, during Black History Month. He wanted to celebrate it. Who the fuck cares? I mean, I mean, in terms of being mad at him for it, like, Jesus, who cares? And no, Fury has won people over. Fury, I thought, did an interesting thing. He was like, you know, it's not about race, blah, blah, blah. Look, Europeans seem to think that Americans are obsessed with race, and I think I would argue that it's the opposite. I think that Europeans are heavily in denial about racial implications in society, but we, we can have that debate for another time. But to Fury's credit, he came out and was like, you know, sort of positioned himself to be the champion of everybody. Uh, whereas, you know, I think, uh, Wilder was trying to send a signal to the black community, which I fine, like, I, I don't give a shit, you know, it, it's, it's fucking black. If this was like Christmas where it was like December, you know, 20th and Deontay was doing that, I'd be like, well, you know, still your choice, but maybe wait a couple of months. Right. It's like Deontay, it's Easter. Why are you dressing like a Decepticon? But, uh, it's February. Let him be. Who gives a shit? Seriously. Who gives a shit? All right, let's see what you guys have tuned in for questions. All right. One of these I can't see. 
Someone writes, been a fan for a while, but became a mega fan after you made me feel bad for liking yellow mustard. All jokes aside, congrats on your upcoming Rogan appearance. Wish you continued success. Yeah, you know what? Yellow mustard's got its parts. It's, it's places, I should say. It's not my favorite, but, you know, I'll, I'll ease off the uh, gas or on that one a little bit. Why don't you believe illegal streaming caused low pay-per-view numbers for the Fury fight? I personally knew four people who wanted to watch it but didn't want to spend $80, so they found an illegal stream. Well, let me be clear about that. I'm not. If you guys didn't see, the reports came out suggesting... Hold on, let me do something here real quick. There we go. The reports came out suggesting that um, the event did between 800 and 850,000 pay-per-view buys, which in and of itself is a great number. However, given the costs uh, and the way it was promoted... They thought it was reported anyway that the break-even point was above a million, maybe even a million too, and so they didn't even make money on the pay-per-view, if you can believe it. Um, but that being said, you know, reaching 800, 850,000 buys on pay-per-view in this modern media market is pretty—it's great. It's really great in terms of just an objective number to hit, if not, um, even if it didn't reach the, the its 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 necessary financial goals. I, it's not that I don't believe it. All I merely said was the following. The report from Kevin Ioli, which I am not telling you is in any way wrong, I encourage you, in fact, to read it, noted that piracy was particularly high. And there's reasons why I can believe it. In the article, it's noted, you know, the UFC faces similar pressures, but they're much more active about um, combating that, like going out of their way to get to work with Twitter and Facebook and Twitch and other platforms to get those kinds of pirated streams taken down. I absolutely believe that to be true, number one. Number two, we're just living in an era of cell phone use. People can just pull out of their pocket something that was more powerful than a computer was, you know, 10, 15 years ago. And so that just makes the ubiquity of um, and, the, and the ease of piracy, given the growing technology on the software side, just a really difficult problem for promoters to handle. I take that seriously. I don't think any part of that is objectionable between the technology issues and then the, the combating it in a sort of a proactive way relative to UFC. My only point is, every time I have seen promoters get faced with disappointing results, they always blame piracy. And they'll do that in the same year where other fights that may have cost just as much or even more still did better numbers. So I'm not telling you to not believe the report or that what they're saying could be true. I'm merely saying... Just a little bit, just a little bit. Take that with a grain of salt. Now, I do agree that I thought I didn't pay much attention to the Fox side of content, but I thought ESPN did a great job promoting it. ESPN, to me, is not much of a news organization. They're just a broadcaster and a friendly voice and assist to the leagues they promote. And they did a great job. They really promoted the shit out of that fight. So um, it could very well be true. Just it's like every single time pay-per-view falls short of expectations. Here, Just watch. The promoter will come out and say, piracy. You know, maybe the the one time they're crying wolf this time really is the time that the wolves came. But I've seen the boy who cried wolf a lot, enough for me to at least consider that as another thing that we should listen to. Um, so, I'll say that, um, yeah, I'll say that. That's it. You and Rogan, back to back. How many waves of Stephen A. Smith's, Ben Shapiro's, and Joshua Fabia's could you handle? <laughs> well, apparently I could get stone cold stunnered, if that's the word, and have my neck broken. But on the first two accounts, Stephen A. Smith and Ben Shapiro, 
bro, it would look like a video game of me and Rogan just, just, just handing out L's. Luke, thoughts on Izzy versus Ray's? Who the fuck is Ray's? Um, this person writes, My good friend Ryan is having his semi-pro MMA debut in Montreal in a couple of weeks. He is truly the most perseverant and dedicated person I know. I wish him good luck. Thank you for your work, Luke. Well, good luck to your friend. What's his name? Ryan. Good luck, Ryan. Godspeed, good sir. In MMA striking, is it better to have super refined metagame a la Connor Southpaw offensive attack or to have a varied modality of attack, a.k.a. Volkanovski, fight off the front and back foot? I don't think they're that different, which is to say something that I really notice about the very best fighters is not that they're just very good at whatever that they do. Of course, that's Obviously, you know, doesn't take a genius to look at that and figure that out. But rather, they know what they want and who they are. They know what they want to do. They know what they're good at. They know what they what counts for them. Connor knows I'm going to build a game off my left hand, and I'm, that's just what it's going to be. Come hell or high water, it's what it's going to be. I'm going to, you know, do all the things necessary to account for all these various probabilities, but I am a southpaw fighter who loves these particular kind of punches, and these particular kind of attacks, I'm just going to be that, and I'm going to build a game around that. Volkanovski, I think it took him time to figure out what would really work. And you could say he's not that kind of a fighter. Maybe he's more of a blood and guts fighter, but he has to fight in a disciplined way to get there. But I tend to think that um, he just understands himself. What am I good at? What works for me? I'm just going to be that. And it takes time to discover that. It takes time to discover that even with your own weight. right? We talked about it with Jared Cannonier. guy was how many fights deep into his career? And he was like, oh yeah, maybe I'm better as a middleweight. It's a crazy thing. So to me, I would say, um, yeah, and I know what you mean. There are there is a difference in modality versus metagame, but I would say that the common denominator is the better fighters understand what makes them effective, what they like to do, and what you like to do is what you'll do more of, either in training or in a fight, and then how to successfully build around it. Um, and there might be different mental approaches upon which to arrive in that position versus like intense self-awareness versus sort of trial and error. But in either way, you kind of arrive at a similar position. I hope that answered the question. If not, I'd be happy to take it um, in a different capacity. Has BJJ essentially fallen by the wayside in modern MMA? It seems like in order to succeed, you have to be either an elite striker or elite wrestler. Yeah, a little bit. Mm Mm-hmm. I think the people who use jiu-jitsu in modern MMA are the people who are exceptionally good at it. Like, people who are really good back takers, really good. Um, people who can just really threaten with the hooks. People who have good, really good guards, that kind of a thing. Um, the, you know, so if you just have overall, like, real solid jiu-jitsu, that's not, you can't do much with that when people are actively avoiding it. Again, I've, said this, I've told this story before, but Ryan Hall made a good point, the difference between jiu-jitsu and MMA and jiu-jitsu and jiu-jitsu, which is, you know, in jiu-jitsu, in jiu-jitsu, you, have, you, you can only beat them one way, which is with your jiu-jitsu. In MMA, you have to compel them to use it. You have to make them use it. Like, if I take your back, you have to use some kind of submission defense, sambo, jiu-jitsu, we can call it submission grappling, whatever you want to call it. 
you have to use that. Okay, you can slam somebody, but in, let's say that doesn't work. You gotta you gotta know how to take uh, you know defensive maneuvers to protect yourself and and get out of that. If you hold someone's back and you really want to finish them there, you need to know how to do that. So it's weird. On the one hand, you're seeing like there's way more black belts in MMA than there ever has been, like real ones. Like Anthony Smith's a real black belt, you know. And uh, he's used it, obviously, for example, in the Gustafson fight, in other fights as well. Um, on the other hand, the the um, the amount it's used has gone down, and particularly dominant positions in jiu-jitsu, with the exception of the back, no longer hold the same value because people like don't have a good mount anymore, or at least it's very rare. Um, the Demian Mayas will have a good mount, things like that. You know, your Jacare is going to have a sick mount, right? But in general, like these kind of static known positions are going away, even though the overall level of competency has gone up. It's a weird thing. Plus, remember, jiu-jitsu is not the pipeline to MMA that it once was. A lot of those guys no longer come over. 10, 15 years ago, your Gordon Ryan would be here already. Garatonin would have been here a while ago. Keenan Cornelius would have been here. You know, you name it. Mikey Musumeci would have been here. Um... Kanan Duarte, he's still 21, so he still might, but they all would have been here. And now you can just make money off jiu-jitsu. Like Gordon Ryan just bought a million-dollar home, you know? He, he gets paid good money to just do that, and he's kicking everybody's ass. Why go get brain damage? Um, Andy Ruiz said he isn't ready to face Luis Ortiz at this point and needs a warm-up fight. Is that strange talk coming from a former champ? No, he was utterly unprepared. For the rematch with Joshua, I would totally expect that. He, he's exactly right. That's what he needs. He's put himself in that position, unfortunately, but he's not wrong. You put your live chat on hiatus due to, amongst other reasons, your Herculean workload and redonkulous commute. Are you not on a crazy schedule again? Yeah, I kind of am. I kind of found myself back in a position where I'm doing too many things. Um... It's not as bad. I'm only going to New York once a week um, as opposed to two. Two was just really bad. I don't know how I did it. Um, Because every time I do it now, it just kills me. Um, I'll say this, man, and I told my wife this too. I can finish out 2020 going to New York. You know, I can maybe even do 2021. I couldn't do it past that. I've been doing it for eight years. I could give you a decade maybe of going to New York, you know, eight hours each day just on the train. To, and I take three different transit systems, um, you know, independent of that. Like, I can only, I can't, I don't know how much longer I can do that, to be honest with you. And people are like, oh, why don't you just move? Well, we might. That's certainly something we're considering. But it's not that simple. You know, if we move, uh, we have to bring some of the family members with us because they don't want to get separated. Um, and I bought my home in D.C. Uh, a long time ago. It has ballooned in value, which I'm very fortunate about. But the question is now, do I sell it? Do I keep it? If I'm going to keep it, you know, who's going to be here? Um, I've only got a little under three years left on the mortgage. Do I really want to? I mean, there's like a lot of questions about what I got three pets. Like, there's a lot of moving parts, man. So, um, so we're not opposed to it, but we'll see what happens. Someone writes, Wilder is a dosser. He's he's been not great post fight. I can I can certainly agree with that. 
Someone writes, Shapiro, I think he references Ben Shapiro, and Thomas on the Sunday special, the meeting of two great minds and fans of one another. Maybe we could form an alliance to take both the MMA and political world by storm. Uh, I'd rather get shot in the face with liquid AIDS. Someone says, Cejudo versus Aldo, whoever wins, we lose. I mean, I don't want to go that far, but a lot of ways it doesn't go great for us. Again, thoughts on Izzy versus Rays. Who the fuck is Rays? How does matchmaking in the UFC work? If Ryan Hall can't get a match, should the UFC be obligated to provide an opponent? Right, it doesn't work that way. I'm not sure all of the guaranteed provisions that go into a contract. I'd have to talk about it. And the reason, by the way, he's only going public with this is because this has been happening for a long time. Uh, He's been telling me about this problem for months. Like months ago, we had a conversation. And he was like, dude, they don't don't want to fight me. And so he's only going public because he's getting, I think, a little bit upset and desperate. So they're independent contractors, so they cannot make them take it. Um. And if they don't, and he doesn't get a fight because literally no one wants to fight him, then they're obligated to just pay him, I think, his at least his show money according to his contract. At that point, they could decide, I think, maybe they, there might be some provisions to release him or release the people who say no, depending on the circumstance. There might be some other ones there, but if they can't get him a fight uh, and they don't, in the end, by the calendar year, they're obligated to pay him, I think, for up to every fights per year on the contract, so three, typically. Sergio Sergio Ramos sent off for the 26th time in his career. Who's your favorite bad guy in sports history, past or present? Well, he's up there. Um, Bill Lambeer was a jack-off. He's another one. Uh, who was it? Romanowski was a jack-off that you, know, you kind of liked. Um, people like Draymond Green. I think Draymond Green, I can't stand him, but I guess people like him. So I would say I'll go Lambeer. Lambeer was a real, a real cock. Luke, UFC coming to Portland, Oregon. I saw Walt Harris as the main event. Not that exciting, but okay. UFC never comes here. I get on Ticketmaster, and good God, man, what the hell? Why so much money? It's what they do, dude. UFC tickets are very expensive. They're not as bad as they used to be, but they're pretty expensive. Sudden death rounds till finish or a decision. Yes, no. You're going to get people hurt doing that. No. Have you seen all of the racist comments about Wilder after his loss? I can only imagine. I made a joke about him on YouTube and had a tirade of racist comments about him. Well, you know, sometimes, not you guys, YouTube comment sections can be accessible. So I wouldn't read too much into that. Still, though, wouldn't so. I mean, yeah, you know, would it be surprising to you that on social media there was a lashing out in 2020 against a uh, a black athlete who not only loses but handles the loss very poorly? Um, if Figueredo wins, the flyweight belt will be vacant. Does this give Dana the green light to get rid of the division? Yeah, he missed weight this morning. Holy shit, bro. <laughs> It's like, if you want to blame the UFC for draining the talent pool, you can. If you want to blame, you know, Mighty Mouse for just wanting to do something else and not sticking with it, and or Cejudo, rather, for leaving the division and blah, blah, blah. I mean, you can blame as many people as you want. On some level, dude, the rest of these flyweights got to get their shit together. I know Benavidez did, and he probably will win, but 
It's like, it's not just the UFC's fault, y'all. Y'all are hanging on by a thread. You should know that. And you go out and you do this. Okay. True or false? Terrence Crawford beats Manny Pacquiao if they fight. Fuck yes. Billy Joe Saunders gives Canelo a hard time if they fight. I don't think so. Anthony Joshua will end fighting Deontay Wilder anyway down the line. I'll say yes. Yes. Many regard BJ Penn as a lightweight goat as well as Khabib. How would you uh how would a fantasy matchup between Prime BJ and Khabib look? Who would you favor and what happens? That's such a weird one because in his prime, for his era, BJ had the most impossibly good takedown defense. And then if even if you got him down, he had jujitsu where he took Matt Hughes's back from guard. He used an octopus guard, if I think of memory serves, in the second of their fights. Used an octopus bar, guard to take his back. Um, now, he, he tore his rib doing that, but it's like there's two different ways you think he might be an interesting opponent. On the other hand, Khabib feels like a bit of a next-level kind of fighter generationally where it wouldn't matter how good you were in the previous generation. That doesn't do you fuck all in this one. So I'd probably lean towards Nurmagomedov, but it'd be an interesting one to, for sure. Uh, looking at the millions of people that are leaving traditional cable every year and buying Roku, Fire TV, will DAZN or ESPN Plus benefit from it? I don't think DAZN... DAZN's got... Dude, have y'all noticed this? Like, I realize that... I realize. I get it completely. Bellator is the promoter. Dude, DAZN does not promote their fights. Sending out emails day of or putting up content behind a DAZN paywall or the occasional thing on their YouTube channel, they don't do shit. ESPN promoted Wilder vs. Fury. Showtime... I mean, do I need to? I mean, I know I'm biased. I work for them. You're gonna tell me they're not good storytellers for all their fights, uh, or or whoever else you want to uh, you know point out there. You know, Fox has done a good job in terms of their PBC stuff. Dude, DAZN, you know, they don't do shit, and maybe that because they can't because they're limited. But like, they don't do a good job of promoting their bigger fights. I mean, one of the reasons why they go to the, people are like, oh, they're gonna go to um, the Paul brothers, Jake and Logan, because it's a young generation. They're going to create new fans. Man, shut the fuck up. No, they're not. They're not creating any new fans. People do not turn to those motherfuckers to watch boxing. Please. They tune into them because they for because the world is filled with feces-throwing, hissing troglodytes who like those two jabronis. And the reality is, I'll give them credit here, they are excellent self-promoters. How do you think they got to that position on YouTube? Anyway, they promote the fights. What's the answer a question for yourself? What's the best promoted DAZN fight, not counting the Paul brothers? Do you want to say Canelo Kovalev? Maybe, maybe the second Joshua fight, maybe with, with Ruiz. But in general, dude, they don't do anything. They don't do anything. And so it's a weird situation now where and you're asking, what do I know on the inside? Nothing. They don't tell me shit. But you've got Coker responding or reporting now to Steven Espinosa of Showtime, and DAZN is just like, hey, Ed Ruth is fighting tonight. Like, dude, you're not, no one's promoting their shit. It's really, it's really weird. Anyway, well, how will cord cutting affect it? I don't know what DAZN's value proposition really is um, because this is not their final form. Their final form will be once all the other leagues go up for renewal on their deals or for new deals, does DAZN get any of them? And if they don't, then they're fucked. Um, so we'll see. 
ESPN Plus's value proposition probably uh, does benefit. ESPN, ESPN Plus and their value proposition probably are part and parcel of cord cutting. Six wins in a row, six finished, last two KO by Oliveira. Thoughts? Yeah, he's on a roll. I'm not sure. He looks amazing. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm excited about his fight with Kevin Lee. It's going to be a great test for both guys. Both guys who you know have great ability but have shown to be sometimes gotten ahead of themselves or error prone. Who has tightened that up more? My guess is it's going to be Kevin Lee, but Oliveira is, is a bad dude. Love the content as always. How did you get started in radio? As a 27-year-old trying to find my way in radio, do you have any advice? So, um, the first ever MMA event in Washington, D.C. was called MMA-C, Mixed Martial Arts Championship. It was run uh, by this Afghanistan Afghani guy. And um, I managed to finagle. I mean, this was totally unprofessional, but I didn't know what I was doing at the time. I was doing some work for Bloody Elbow, and I was like, I'll go cover the event. And I asked him who his commentators were during my interview. And he was like, oh, we have Charlie Neal, who's been a sort of a local guy who's done a lot of stuff on collegiate sports and some other things. And he was, you know, he was good for what the time was. He had a nice Mercedes that I got to ride in. That was cool. <laughs> um, and something came over me. I would never do this now, ever. This is totally, un- this is very unprofessional. But at the time, I just go, uh, I could do it. And I, it was, I've never done it before. I was like, what the, f-? even when the call was over, I was like, what the fuck did I just say? Why did I tell him that? And he goes, why don't you come down and try out? So I came down and um, I had some uh, stuff recorded from a, like a previous gig that I had done some podcasting on and he liked it and then just gave me the job like just like that anyway so the guy who was the ring announcer for the show was a guy by the name of JP Flame JP Flame is one of four sports junkies these guys who are radio institution here in the city they're uh, they were on WJFK 1067 the fan all of the radio stations all over the country um they had to figure out something when Howard Stern left to go to satellite and, you know, all these places gave, like, David Lee Roth fucking radio shows and Cato Kalin radio shows. Um, they all went under. They all went under. The only group that took over for the post-Howard Stern era in a major, at all, in any kind of major market, top 50 or otherwise, have been the sports junkies. They're the only ones who took over and were successful. Anyway, he was like, you know, MMA was beginning to heat up in 2007. And um, he was like, why don't you come on the show sometimes when we want to talk about UFC fights? So I did. And then other shows on the channel, on the, uh, on the station rather, um, started having me on. And then the program director brought me in, and this was in 2008. He goes, how would you like to have a weekend radio show? You could try out. I said, okay. Uh, and then I, the tryout went well, and they gave me one. And that's how I got in. It's just, you know, so this is always when people are like, oh, how do I get into MMA media? I'm like, dude, fuck if I know. You know what I mean? Like, the way I got in was, A, unprofessional. Uh, and B, that, that environment where everyone, where people were looking to do things in the MMA space and no one knew who to ask for, like if you wanted, if someone said, Hey, we need someone to cover the combine that's happening in Indianapolis right now, the NFL combine, you would sort of know where to go. Let's go to CBS sports. Let's go to the NFL network. Let's go to ESPN. Let's go to, you know, all the different, you just run down the list. You can find analysts all the way through, right? You, it would be very easy to do. Uh, but at the time, no one really knew how to do that in MMA. They, they didn't really have a keen sense of things. Certainly not the regional level post Ultimate Fighter boom, and um, I just got in while the getting was good. That's it. 
So how do you get in? How, how would you find your way? You should be podcasting at a bare minimum all the time. I'll put it that way. Um, I'll make this quick. Thoughts on Madrid versus Man City? Yeah, I mean, I th- kind of expected them to lose. They've been very inconsistent, especially offensively. I like the formation. What was it? A 4-3-3. But, um, you know, they, not starting Tony Cross was weird. I do like Valverde, but he didn't have his best game. Mendy was good. Um, yeah, that's about it. Uh, 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 Modric came alive later. Do you think Nurmagomedov would do again? How would he do against Nicky Ryan, Gary Toner, or Gordon Ryan in a grappling match like a Naga tournament? I think he would get beaten. I mean, you know, oh, what's his face? Uh, Javier Mendez has told me he's never even tapped in in um, practice. Boy, I would love to see that tested on the on the open market. What are your thoughts on Khabib and DC's friendship? Yeah, it's a friendship built on you know, it's a bit of a buddy cop odd couple thing, but. You know, two guys forged in the same process, so to speak, of, you know, you're going you're gonna to bond. Fictional characters do you think would be birds of a feather with or replacement for? What? Oh, you would be birds of a feather with. You strike me as a good Jack Reacher? What fictional characters do you think you would be birds of a feather with or replacement for? Uh, I've always liked Schwarzenegger's characters, you know, hence the... Schwarzenegger doll over my uh, right shoulder here. So Dutch from uh, Dutch from Predator has always been like my my go-to. Why is the rear naked choke such a hard submission to escape? You mean when done properly? Because if it's done properly, you are cutting off the carotid arteries, so it's not um, so there's an involuntariness to it. That's quick, right? It's not an air choke which could take some time. It's a blood choke, which can be fast. Um, it is secured from a position that is highly advantageous and asymmetrical, which is I have your back. You have no real forms of offense, not not much anyway. And then if you if the choke is sealed, you're sealing it with wedges, and then the head on top. So there's no way to peel the hand. The hand is secure. The lock is secure. The choke is quick, and it's all involuntary. It's a and it's from an a. a profoundly advantageous position like every reason why it works is is not accidental they are trying to say izzy versus dominic reyes you nerd oh izzy versus dominic reyes uh they they both came to my ufc 244 pre-fight party they're they're about the same height and size um probably take izzy in that one because i think the uh, takedown offense of uh Reyes is not great, so he'd probably be on the feet. And I think Izzy's probably better than a lot of people there, but be a fun fight. All right, I got to get out of here. I got to do my other show. So with that in mind, I appreciate everybody watching as they have. Oh, Jesus Christ. I got to get these. Uh, I got to get these. Here we go. I got to get these things uh, looked into. The, the comment section here is crazy. There we go. All right. In any event, uh, oh, one more time. Like the video. Subscribe to the channel. Tell a friend about it. I'll have the podcast up. Thank you guys so much for watching. I might do something for UFC Norfolk, but no guarantees. And uh, yeah, you guys are the best. Until next time, thank you so much for watching. Stay frosty.